Amen. Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. It's good to see you all this morning. Do you have your Bibles? Good. You need to turn to Colossians chapter 1. So we're going to study today. We're going to take a little break because it's Christmas Sunday from our study of 2 Corinthians. We have been plowing through 2 Corinthians for quite some time. We've got a long way to go. If you're not usually here, I want to invite you to come back next week and we'll get back into our study of 2 Corinthians. But today, uh, we're going to seek in some ways to answer the question that that last song posed. What child is this? Who is this Jesus? Why is it such a big deal that this child was born? We're going to answer that from Colossians chapter 1. But before we go there, I want to go to Luke chapter 2. You don't need to turn there. And I want to read to you the narrative account of Jesus' birth. Um, I I want to do this because I don't want to assume that you're familiar with it. Uh, Part of me wants to assume that everyone's familiar with this story, um, but I know better. And so I want to do my due diligence today to make sure that you are familiar with the narrative of Jesus' birth. So Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says this. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news, great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. I got a card just a minute ago after Sunday school from my son Isaac. And on the inside of it, it had written what the angels said. They said, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And that's what this day is about, right? Good news, great joy for all the people. A Savior has been born, and He is Christ the Lord. Amen? And so we want to talk about who is this baby? Why is this such a big deal? Why do we still celebrate today this baby that was born 2,000 years ago? And to get that, we need to go to Colossians. You can go to a million places, but Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20 is where we'll look today. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Speak of Jesus. Describe who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and how we should respond to his person and work. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Let's pray together. God, we are uh, so thankful for this day, uh, that we can come together uh, on this day and celebrate and rejoice over the coming of our Savior. And God, I pray today that you'll help us to understand more and more and appreciate more and more and rejoice more and more and proclaim more and more who Jesus is and what he has done for us. God, we don't want this season to be a time of celebration apart from truth, apart from the reality who Christ is and what he has done. We want our celebration to be loud, affectionate, and based on truth and all about him. So help us as we study today. Help us as we respond today. Help us as we celebrate on Tuesday. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so the question of the day is, who is this baby? And the first answer we see in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, is that this baby is God, okay? And, and, we, and I, I want to amen for that, uh, because, because we don't want just to understand that he's just a baby. This baby that we are going to celebrate is God in the flesh, amen? Amen. And we see that in this text when he says he is the image of the invisible God. We see it in verse 19 when he says it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. What we understand about God in the Old Testament is that he is spirit. He is immaterial. He is invisible. And from the beginning, having an invisible, immaterial God lo- creates in us a longing for something we can hold on to. We, we have a longing within us for a God that we can see and touch and feel and hear and know. And God the Father is not that way. The Bible teaches clearly that He is spirit and therefore He is invisible and immaterial. And so, from the beginning of God's relationship with His people, He has warned them not to create any kind of, any kind of idol any kind of, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for, image of him. Any kind of carved image, any kind of graven image, any kind of printed image. He says, don't do that. And he guards his people against it over and over and over again because the reality is no carved image, no graven image, no printed image. None of those things accurately represent God, do they? If God is as great and good and powerful and omnipresent and big as the Bible says he is, you think you're going to create a little statue that perfectly sums him up, that represents him well? Absolutely not. God forbids these kind of images because nothing does him justice. And yet he knows that we have this longing for a God we can see and feel and hear. And so he gives us that image, right? He provides for us an image of himself that does him justice. In fact, that is him. Does that make sense to you? Jesus says in John chapter uh, 14, speaking to Philip, Philip has this question. He says, oh, Lord, show us the Father. We want to see the Father. Show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. And part of Jesus' explanation and his answer to that question is, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He doesn't say if you see this little statue, oh, the Father is like this little statue, or the Father is like the wind, or the Father is like this. He says, no, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God. And that's what Paul tells us at the beginning of this passage. He says he is the image of the invisible God. One commentator says it this way. He says, the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, satisfies our longing for a God who has all the wisdom, love, power, and holiness that we associate with God, but who is also one we can see, touch, hear, and talk to. When Jesus came to earth, he set before us a flawless, moment-by-moment, audio-visual, full-color, three-dimensional demonstration of what God is like. I love that, right? Three-dimensional, audio-visual, full-color. Right? You want to see what God the Father is like? Who do you look at? You look at Jesus, right? You can't look exactly at God the Father because he's invisible, he's immaterial, but you look at Jesus. And when you look at Jesus, you see the Father because he and the Father are one, right? And so this little baby, this little baby born in a manger is God. And we need to affirm that to the very end. He is God. Amen? He is also man. Who is this baby? He is God. Who is this baby? He is man. What do we celebrate on Christmas Day? We celebrate his birth, right? That teaches us that he was a man, right? He was born. He was a man. He got hungry, right? You read that in the gospel accounts. You see Jesus get hungry. Evidently, he likes to eat fish quite a bit. So he's fish with folks. He got hungry. He also got tired. There's one scene where he's sleeping in a boat while a storm is going on. We'll talk about that again in a minute. He also wept. Right? There's a scene when he goes to his friend Lazarus' tomb, sees the emotion of everything that's going on, realizes the situation that all of those people are in, and he weeps. We don't see it so much in this text in Colossians, but I want us to affirm that Jesus, this baby, is God and he is man. He is the perfect God-man. And we see both of those things demonstrated clearly in a couple of different passages. I've already alluded to them once. One is at Lazarus' tomb. He goes to Lazarus' tomb, his best friend has died, and he's overcome with sadness, and he weeps. But what else does he do? He weeps and shows us his humanity, but what does he do? He raises him from the dead, right? Can you do that? No, you can't do that. You can cry, right? You identify with him in his crying, but you cannot identify with him in his resurrection power when he brings Lazarus out of the tomb. So when we see Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, we see both his humanity and his deity. We also see that in Simon Peter's boat. As the storm is raging and Jesus is asleep in the bottom of the boat, right? We see his humanity in that he was tired and he was sleeping. But in the next breath, we see his divinity. We see his deity when he stands up and he says, be still. Right? Says to the storm, be still. And what happens? It's still. Can you do that? No, you can't do that. Can you sleep? Absolutely. So we see in that one scene both the humanity and the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to affirm today, right off the bat, that this little baby is God and man. Right? Not God or man, but God and and man. He is the perfect God-man who can die for our sins, make propitiation for us, and save us from God's wrath. Whoo! This is why we celebrate, right? This is worth celebrating. I was reading this week talking about this business of Jesus is God, Jesus is man, and uh, I, I, I learned that it was represented even in the tabernacle, in the temple, with the veils, in the tabernacle and the temple. One of the veils, a part of a veil, was red. Right? And part, another one was blue, right? Red and blue. But a third one was purple. All right? How do you make purple? Can you, can you buy purple dye in the first century? 
No, you can't buy purple dye, but you can create red dye, and you can create blue dye, and mix them together, and what do you get? Purple. You know what purple is? Purple is red and blue. You get this? This is gold, especially in Harrisburg, where we've got purple all over the place, right? purple all over the place. And so part of the goal today is that next time you go to a Bulldog basketball game or football game or baseball game or whatever kind of game you go to and you see all this purple, I want you to think about Jesus because that's what he is. He is not red. He is not blue. He is purple. He is God and man. He's not red, man, blue, God, separated all the time. He is God, man, red and blue, make purple, right? I didn't, I didn't mess that, that up, did I? That's like kindergarten, isn't it? Jesus is both God and man. God in the failed in flesh. Aaron loves the song. Failed in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Incarnate deity. God and man. Right? This is Jesus and this is why we celebrate. This little baby is God. This little baby is man. Third thing I want you to see in this text is that this little baby is Lord. He is God, he is man, and he is Lord. He is boss, he is ruler, he is sovereign. And we see it all over this text. One of the places we see it is in verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. If you're reading from the NIV, NIV nails it here. When they say, he is the firstborn over all creation. Because sometimes we read this business about Jesus being the firstborn and we have a misunderstanding that Jesus was the first created thing. I want you to hear me say clearly today, Jesus was not created. Paul does not believe Jesus was created. If Paul meant by that that Jesus was the first created thing, then he lies in the very next breath when he says he created everything. He did create everything. Right? Because he himself was not created. The way we need to understand this business of firstborn is in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament context of what it means to be the firstborn. If you read through the Old Testament, most of the time, it doesn't matter who was born first. When it comes to passing down the property, when it comes to passing down the promises, at least with the patriarchs, it really doesn't matter who was born first. But someone is given all of this authority, someone is given all of this responsibility, and someone is given all of this privilege as the firstborn who will reign over the others. Does that make sense? We see it several times in the Old Testament where it's not the literal firstborn that gets this. It's sometimes the secondborn, but nonetheless, he has all the rights and privileges of the firstborn. Does that make sense? So we need to see it not so much as time, but about position and rank and authority. In other words, what Paul teaches us here is that Jesus is superior to and distinct from all of the created things. All other created things. He says he is the firstborn over all creation. Jesus stands at the head of all creation. He alone is Lord and Master. All right, we see it another place in verse 17 where it says, he is before all things. I think there's a little bit of a play on words there because I think in that phrase, Paul means that he does predate all of these things, right? Jesus doesn't have a beginning. He is eternally existent with the Father and the Spirit, right? So he predates all things. He's before all things in time, but he's also before all things in priority and rank. He stands as the head of all things. Jesus is Lord, and Paul goes to great lengths to tell us this. In fact, um, at one point, Jesus is challenged by the, by the Pharisees and others in the Gospels, and he makes this statement where he says, Before Abraham was, I am. Remember that? 
What a weird way to answer that question, right? That's not good grammar, is it, Joe? Before Abraham was, I am. You would say before Abraham was, I was. But not Jesus, because he's always existed. He says before Abraham was, I am, right? And it says in this text, he is before all things. And then, finally, it teaches us that he is the head of the church. Look in verse 18. It says he is also the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the Lord of the church, and Jesus is the Lord of this church, right? He is the boss of the church. He is the boss of this church. We don't submit to a pope. We don't submit to a priest. We don't submit to a pastor or any other person. We submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Good. So the question then is, what is the church? If Jesus is the head of the church, what is the church? Well, there are three illustrations used in Scripture to describe the church. One is a building, right? Now, don't get, don't get crazy on me. I'm not talking about a physical building. He's using that as an illustration. Where Jesus is the foundation, Jesus is the foundation, and we, his people, are the living stones that are built up to create the church, okay? Jesus has to take Jesus out. What happens to the living stones? They fall in. Jesus is the foundation. We are the stones. Another illustration that is used is the bride, right? The church is referred to as the bride, where Jesus is the powerful groom who provides and protects, right? And gives and sacrifices and loves. And we are the the bridegroom. We are the bride, where Jesus loves, serves, cherishes, treasures us. He loves us, and we submit to him, and we love him, and we honor him. The church is a building, the church is a bride, and the church is a body, with Jesus as the head and us as his people as the different parts of the body, eyes, ears, nose, fingers, all of these parts of the body. Take away the head, and what do you have? Nothing, right? Death is what you have if you take away the head from the body. And if you take away Jesus from the church, that's exactly what you have in the church as well. Death. All right? So, Jesus is God. Jesus is man. Jesus is Lord. He is firstborn over all creation. He is before all things. He is the head of the church. He is the boss. This little baby is the boss, right? Man, yeah, he's the boss. That's why this is a big deal. It's why we celebrate on this day. It's why you get dressed up and come to church on this day. Because Jesus is Lord, all right? He is also creator. Paul teaches us in this text in verse 16, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things have been created by him, through through him, and for him. Notice what he says here, all things. And then he goes to great lengths to say, no, I really mean all things, right? I'm not just talking about the trees and the grass and the people. I'm talking about all things, even spiritual things, things in heaven, things on earth, things under the earth. Everything that exists is created by whom? Jesus, right? How crazy is that for people that Paul is actually writing to? Some people who may have met Jesus in the flesh, Paul says to them, that guy you knew created you. That's crazy, right? It's exactly right. One of my favorite songs in this Andrew Peterson concert that Aaron's going to play through uh, tomorrow night is, is, is a song that Laura is actually going to sing uh, where it talks about the baby in her womb, right? It talks about Joseph standing by Mary as she's giving birth and moon is shining on his face. The moon is shining on his face. And it says the baby in her womb was the maker of that moon, right? 
It's crazy, isn't it? This little baby created everything. And he did. He really did create everything that exists. There are more stars, I read this this week, there are more stars in the sky than grains of sand in all the world. More stars in the sky than all of the grains of sand on every seashore on the planet. And guess who made them all? Jesus made them all, right? Jesus made every one of them. And I think that we have too small of a picture of Jesus. And that's part of why I wanted to preach this today. I think a lot of times, especially at Christmas, we have this pitiful, pitiful and unbiblical view of Jesus where he's just this little bitty thing. He, is, he was born a little bitty baby, but he's God. He is man. He is Lord. He's creator. That little bitty baby laying in a manger created the manger. That little bitty baby created everything that exists. And so we worship him. That's where we're going to get to eventually. We worship him. He is the creator of all things. He owns the universe. It's his. He made it. I say that sometimes to my kids. I made them. Well, not really. Jesus made them, right? He owns them. And he owns it all. There's a scene in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 where John hears an angel saying, Oh, who, who is worthy? Who is worthy to take the book and break its seals? Who is worthy to open up the scroll? And John is devastated because as this angel searches heaven and earth and under the earth, there's no one found worthy to open the book and break the seals. There's no one who has the kind of authority to have that kind of control to take the book and break its seals. Except who? Jesus, right? There is one found worthy and then one step forth, born, uh, uh, standing as a lamb as if slain, right? Takes the book, breaks its seals, right? Worthy are you, for by your blood you purchase men from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Jesus made it all. He owns it all, right? All right, so he's creator. He's creator. He is God. He is man. He is Lord. He is creator. He made it. He bought it. He takes it by force. What are are we at? Four or five things, something like that. He is also sustainer. Not only is he creator, he is sustainer. Look at verse 17. It says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He didn't just create the world and everything that exists and then walk away from it. That's the way watchmakers work, right? Watchmaker makes his watch with all the intricate details and all the gears and all the springs and all the little parts, and he makes it, and then he winds it up, and he sets it loose. Is that the way God works? No, thank God that's not the way God works, right? Rather, he puts it all together. He creates it out of nothing, and then he puts it all together with all its intricacies and all its details and all its springs and all its gears, and then he governs over it all, and he keeps it working, right? You realize that if it weren't for God's, if it weren't for Jesus sustaining everything, that even the smallest particles would fly apart. You know how an atom holds together? Ask a physicist how an atom holds together. He cannot explain it. Ask a preacher how an atom holds together. Jesus holds it together, right? Jesus holds the atoms together. How's the universe held together? Ask a physicist how the universe is held together. He cannot explain it. Ask a preacher how the universe is held together. Jesus holds it together. You know what that means? That means if Jesus quit, everything would be destroyed. If Jesus was not sustaining everything that exists, everything would be destroyed. Not only is he holding it all together... He is caring for our daily needs as well. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us not to be anxious about anything. He says, oh, you get so worked up about what you're going to put in your belly or what you're going to put on your back, what you're going to wear for clothes. He says, don't get worried about those kind of things. Look at the birds. The birds don't toil. The birds don't plow. 
The birds don't plant, and yet they're fed, right? Who feeds them? God feeds them, right? He says, look at the flowers. They don't spin. They don't create clothes. They don't sew, but yet they're clothed in glory like Solomon. Who clothes them? God clothes them, right? He says, why would you be worried about anything? If he loves the birds and he loves the flowers, how much more does he love you? And how much more will he provide for you? I want you to see that Jesus is the sustainer of everything. He holds it all together and he provides for our daily needs. And then it gets really good in verse 20. He is God, he is man, he is Lord, he is creator, he is sustainer. And then finally in verse 20, he is savior and sacrifice. Look at verse 20, this is dynamite. He says, it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. This is the purpose of his coming to earth, right? Why did Jesus come to earth? He came to die. And why did he have to die? Because you and I are far from God. You and I are sinners, separated from God, deserving only his wrath and judgment. And Jesus comes to be the substitute and the sacrifice for us. He comes to earth, lives this perfect life without sin, goes to the cross, and takes our punishment, takes our sin upon himself, takes our punishment, dies the death that we deserve, and raises again on the third day. Right? Jesus is the Savior and he is the sacrifice. He is the substitute for you and I. You realize when we talk about Good Friday, when we talk about Jesus' crucifixion, when we think about how they beat him, when we think about how they humiliated him, when we think about the stripes that he took for us and that crown of thorns they placed on his head, when we think about him being nailed to the cross, you know that should have been you, right? You know that should be me, right? I know that. What I know for certain is that he didn't deserve any of that. And I deserved all of that. And he stepped in and took it for me. Good news. Great joy for all the people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. How does he save? By his own sacrifice, as a substitute for you. He steps in and takes the punishment for you. And you receive the gift of forgiveness and salvation and eternal life by grace. It's a gift, right? We're all about giving gifts this time of year, right? It's a gift that we receive by faith, by believing in Him, trusting in Him, depending on Him, repenting of our sins, submitting our lives to Him. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. Jesus is Lord. He is creator. He is sustainer. And He is the Savior and the sacrifice. So what do we do? If this is who Jesus is, what do we do when we meet him? You do exactly what the shepherds did. You do exactly what the wise men did. You do exactly what most people do when they meet Jesus and they understand rightly who he is. You submit, you fall down, and you worship him. That's what you do when you meet Jesus. That's what we must do. What it says in this text is, he is also the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. How do you respond to who Jesus is? You give him first place in everything. First place in everything. One scholar says this, some people give him place. They've opened their hearts to him, accepted him as savior. Other people go further and give him prominence. They order their lives so as to give him general control, but 
they have reservations about going all the way. Some doors are still barred to him. In some areas, they still reserve the right to do as they please. But then a few people give him preeminence. That's what some of your translations say there instead of first place, preeminence. Some people give him preeminence. He is the king of kings and lord of lords over all they have and are. He gets first place because he's God, because he's man, because he's Lord, because he's creator, because he's sustainer, because he's savior and sacrifice. He gets first place. So the question for today, what place does he have in your life? Is Jesus first place? That's all, that's all that's acceptable. Jesus in second place is unacceptable. The question is, does he have first place in your life? If not, my encouragement to you is get him in first place today. Come to him today and lay yourself down and submit to him as Lord. Trust him as Lord. Follow him as Lord. What place is Jesus in your life today? Second question is, what place is Jesus in in your celebration of Christmas? I struggle with that this week. What place, what place does Jesus have in our Christmas celebration? Does it make any sense to have him in anything but first place? It's, it's his day after all, right? It's not Santa Claus Day. It's not family day. It's not presence day. This is Jesus Day, right? And so he should have first place in our Christmas. Let's stand together and pray. God, thank you for sending Jesus. We see from your word that he is God and we affirm that. We see that he is man. We see that he is Lord. We see that he is creator. We see that he is sustainer. We see that he is savior and sacrifice. And we want to respond rightly to that. We don't simply want to agree with those things. We don't simply want to affirm those truths. We want to respond in celebration, in worship, in adoration, in submission and obedience. We want, we want to live our lives with Jesus in first place. So God, I pray today, in this moment, that your Holy Spirit will show us what place Jesus has in our lives. And God, I pray that if he is not first place, if he doesn't have preeminence in everything, that you'll break us today. That you'll change us today. That you'll humble us today. So that Jesus would have first place in everything. God, I pray that you'll help us to examine our celebration of Christmas. Help us to make sure that Christmas is all about him. That he has first place in our Christmas. God, I pray for men and women and boys and girls who are here who don't know you at all, far, far from you, dead in their trespasses and sins, oh God, would you come to them today and make them alive by your grace, by your goodness. Show them their great need. Show them your great provision. Give them faith. Give them repentance. Turn their eyes to you and change them forever for your own glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.